Thank you, Deacon Jinwei, and for leading us, and also for Tongin and the team on a time of worship. Very good morning to everyone. Good morning. This morning, we'll be looking at the fourth point or step of the presentation of the series, Two Ways to Live, which is about God sending His Son to die for us. So I will focus on that topic for my sermon. But I'm going to do it differently as in the past. I'm going to attempt to speak to you as if you are new to Christianity. So if it fails, don't blame me, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll need to pray. Father, pray that you help me to speak about your gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and to help us to understand. Give, us, give me the courage and the clarity to speak your word that my brother and sisters here will understand that this is also for them. But they too also might be able to understand the gospel that they will be able to share those among themselves and pray that they will hear your voice speaking to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I have only two points to make for this sermon. The first point is, why did Jesus have to suffer and die for us? And the second is, how does it prove God's great love for us? Why did Jesus have to suffer and die for us? And how does it prove God's great love for us? A quick recap of the presentation thus far is that the Bible tells us that every one of us is created by God. Wherever you are born or when you were born, God is our creator and we are his creation. Because we have this creator-creation relationship, we, he rules over us and we owe him our allegiance and obedience. But we have rebelled against him and did not want anything to do with him. So we chose to live separately and independently from God. This is what the Bible calls sin, the rejection and rebellion against God not just about doing bad things. Because God is righteous, holy, and just, He demands justice. And one day, God will finally judge everyone fairly and justly. In fact, humanity is experiencing the consequences of rejecting God today. We experience suffering and death because of our rebellion. But God loves men and women He created. And he does not want us to suffer the consequences of our rejection and rebellion. He wants to save us, not condemn us. And he does it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, which leads to our first point. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die for me? And the reason is because God loves us. The Bible tells us that God loves us so much that he wants to save us, not condemn us. And it is because of his love and his desire to save us that he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to do something that we can't do for ourselves. Love is the motivation and reason why God sent Jesus to not only suffer, but to die in our place. Now, this important truth 
has three implications if love is the reason and the motivation of God. First, it tells us that God, the God of the Bible, is a personal God who wants to have a personal and intimate relationship with you. He is not God who is far away or distant, someone that you must wake him or call out to him loudly. Neither is he a God who is unconcerned or uninterested in our affairs of our, of the, of our lives, that our cries and our prayers to him is unheard. No. Instead, the Bible tells us that God loves us and is drawing himself near to us. The second implication is that the God of the Bible loves us because we are his creation. You know, usually we have to behave in a certain way or even do certain things before someone would ever take an interest in us and maybe even initiate a friendship. And we often choose our friends and our future partners based on what we think, perceive of the person, how good a character he or she might be, how he or she might contribute and help in my life goals and achieve it. There is usually a sort of cost and benefit analysis that is going on in our minds, even though we might not dare to admit it. But God does not think like we do. No. The God of the Bible loves every one of us, not for our behavior, not for our performance, not even our potential, but rather simply because we are his creation. Now, this is odd and even possibly countercultural today. Because today, even though love is a very important issue among many, especially the younger ones, people are more interested in loving themselves than others. In fact, they want to have the freedom to love anything and everything. They want to do so, but in doing so, they want others to sacrifice so that they can love freely. And ironically, in the end, they seek to change themselves in order to be accepted and loved by others. The pursuit of love is not a bad thing. In fact, I believe it reveals a deep part of us, something that is deeply missing in all of us that we have not found. But if love is dependent upon us, our performance, our behavior, our potential, then guess what? We will forever be miserable and unfulfilled. Because the true meaning of love is not to love ourselves, but to love another. And the God of the Bible is offering his love that does not depend upon us, on who we are and what we do. This is God's unconditional love for us, that he loves us as where we are. And we don't have to do anything for God to love us. You know, I have experienced many different kinds of love. Love with my parents, my siblings, friends, and even my wife. But I can't say that the love that I had for all of them was unconditional. There was some form of condition, right? No? Okay, okay, I'm the only one, okay. But anyway, the only time that I believe that I caught a glimpse of unconditional love was when I had my firstborn, Callum. I couldn't explain. This was something very new to me. 
But when I held my firstborn in my arms, I just had an overwhelming sense of love for him. And I didn't need him to do anything. I didn't need him to prove to me anything. I just loved him because he was my son. And I truly deeply believe that this unconditional love that God has for us is in a very similar vein. That's how much he loves us. You and I don't have to do anything. And the third implication is this, that the God of the Bible did not change from an angry and wrathful God to become a loving God after Christ's sacrifice and death. God is not like the God of the ancients, whereby he's always wrathful, bloodthirsty, and needs a sacrifice to be appeased. Why? Because it was love, love, the motivation that moved God to send his son to save us, not wrath and anger. Yes, God is angry towards sin, and in the past, he has demonstrated his wrath against sinners, but because he's a just, righteous, and holy God. As someone, but this does not mean that he is void of love and compassion or, or mercy. As someone says, while God's holiness and righteousness and justice required that there be a payment for sin, his love provided it. The main point is that God didn't change from an angry God to a loving God only after Jesus' sacrifice. He has always been a loving God since time eternal, but he's also a righteous and just God. There is no conflict in God's mind and heart. The second point is, why does Jesus need to die on the cross for our sins? It's because we owe a debt that we can never repay. The late Tim Keller once gave an, uh, who was a pastor of a New York City church, gave an illustration that I think is helpful for us to have an understanding of the concept of forgiveness and why it is costly and will help us to understand this point. Now imagine that I invite you to my house and in the center of the living room displayed in all its glory is a vase or depending where you come from, vase. And it is a very expensive vase, something that I paid exorbitantly and is very rare, one out of five. But because you were so curious and interested, and because I'm a pastor, you dare to ask, can I touch it? And unwillingly, I say, okay, go ahead. And you touch it, and you're excited, and in the midst of it, you gobble. no, it means uh, you, uh, what's the English translation, you uh, carelessly dropped the vase, and it shattered to a million pieces. And then you look at me, sheepishly smile, I'm sorry. Now, there are two things that can happen. First, I kick you out of my house. No, actually not that. There are two things that can happen in order to restore back the peace and goodwill that we had once before. One, either you go and find me the other remaining four vases and pay for it and replace it, or I say, it's okay. I forgive you. Do you realize that either way, someone has to pay the price? Either you pay and are all, I pay for your fault and accept the loss. This illustrates why God's forgiveness cannot be without a cost. 
Why he cannot just wave a wand and make everything okay? Because there is a debt and someone has to pay for it. The Bible tells us that we owe a huge debt to God and no one can repay that debt except his son. What do I mean? Jesus told a parable, a story to illustrate the amount of this debt. There was a man who owed a huge and exorbitant amount of money to a king who represents God. And the, and the amount is 10,000 talents. Now, why 10,000 and not 100,000 talents? Because in the original language in Greek, 10,000 was the highest numeric, numerical number that you can achieve to 10,000. Now, that's an incredible amount of money. According to a commentary, it is like 10,000 talents is equal, equivalent to 150,000 years of wages. Now, let's say you earn annually $30,000 a year. Do you know how much it is, 10,000 talents in today's term? $4.5 billion. Can you imagine? Basically, the story illustrates that this man cannot repay his debt to the king. And Jesus used this to teach us that we owe to God this kind of debt. But you may ask me, how so? When did I owe a debt to God? Today, in a civil suit, when we defame or insult, meaning damage someone's reputation in public, someone and we are found guilty, usually the plaintiff will be awarded some monetary damage. And one of the ways in which the judge will calculate the amount that a person should pay for the damage is based on that plaintiff's uh, repu uh, reputation and damage itself, the, ex the extent of the damage. So basically, a person with a higher reputation will be awarded a higher amount. So if a person is well-known in society, has good standing, sues and wins a defamation case, he or she may be awarded, let's say, $100,000. But let's say, if I sue and I win, I'll probably be awarded a few hundred dollars because nobody knows me, all right? Because I'm a nobody. But what if the person is of infinite worth? Then the amount awarded ought to be infinite too. You see, even though we do not actively defame God, when we, who are His creation, do not acknowledge Him, nor give Him the glory and worship that He deserves, we have caused a great injustice. We have taken away what is rightfully, and rightfully his and due to him as creator. We have injured and insulted him greatly. That is why the debt that you and I owe to him is an infinite amount, and we can't repay it. But how come often people think especially religious people think they are able to. Give me a, let me give you another example. Suppose one day you are in an ice cream shop and you notice that the boy in front of you in the queue ordered a $2 ice cream, but he realizes that the mummy only gave him a dollar, so he's short of $1. And being a nice person, you offer to pay the $1, and the boy gets his ice cream, and he's happy. 
You know, very often people see doing good as making up for the shortfall or that they should be doing more good so that it will cancel out the bad deeds that they have done or they have committed. The idea is basically doing a good deed to either cancel out the bad debt, the bad deed, or to surpass the bad deed itself. And then you will prove to be a good person. And that's what they're seeking to achieve. But suppose, let's say, the same boy, but this time he doesn't offer the $1 that he has, but instead snatches the ice cream from the hands of the server and runs out. And it just happens he crashes into the policeman who is standing outside who has witnessed what has happened. And he brings the boy back into the ice cream shop. And then now, you, do you think that the boy now can be set free and the matter is settled if you offer $2 now? No. Why? Because it is no longer a monetary debt or shortfall, but a moral debt. Because the law has been broken, $2 will not make up for it. Similarly, the debt that we owe to God cannot be paid off by our own good works, no matter how much we may try, because it demands a higher payment. Like the boy, his debt cannot be just be repaid with money, his moral debt. He owes this moral debt and has to be judged and punished. Which leads to the next point, why God's justice demands all sins to be punished. The Bible teaches that God is a God of love, but also a God of justice. There is no tension nor contradiction in Him being loving and just. Rather, God being loving requires Him to be just. In fact, the, the other way is God cannot be loving if He's not just. If God does not demand the wrongs to be made right, would you call that loving? For example, if He sees an injustice that is done to His children, but He does nothing or ignores it, maybe even forgets about it, is that being loving to his children? Rather, when God pursues justice for the wrong and the injustice that is done against his children, he is demonstrating his love for them. Now, let's say you have a child and the child is being bullied at school and he or she comes to you crying and tells you what has happened. I'm sure as a parent, you will feel upset and maybe a sense of injustice. A wrong has been done to your child and he or she has cried out to you. And so what do you do? Ignore the cry of help and do nothing? If you were to do so, how would your child look at you? Loving parent? Very unlikely. But let's say you respond by assuring your child that tomorrow morning, the first thing that you will do, that you will go down to school and look for the principal and address the matter and to find out what is happening and to stop this bullying behavior. How would the child see you? Not just only a protective parent, but a loving parent who would do something that the child cannot do to seek justice. You are expressing your love for your child by demanding some form of justice and you want this to be stopped. And that is to be expected. But how about the recent cases that we have read on the newspaper, sadly of the abuse and the murder of children. Did you feel a sense of injustice? Did you want the wrong to be made right? Or were you okay if society 
allow the guilty to go scot-free and not to be punished. If you have a great sense of injustice for such a for a person that you have never known, do not know, or may not even see in your rest of your life, how much more for God when the great injustice has been done against him to those that he known? Can God do nothing? He cannot if he is just. And so the Bible teaches that all who have sinned against God must die because that is the price. The, pri- the punishment befits the crime. Have you heard of that? So sinning against an infinite God requires the ultimate price to be paid, your life. So for God to be a God of justice, His justice has to be fully satisfied. And there are only two ways that this can happen. One, either we are judged and punished for our sins and as a result die, or and when we die, we will never live to experience having a relationship with God or someone of infinite worth takes our place. Therefore, for God to be a God of love and justice, He has to show both His great love and His perfect justice. He does this by giving us His Son, Jesus Christ, to take upon the full punishment for our sins and die the death that we deserve so that justice might be fulfilled and to save us so that he can demonstrate God's great love for us. Now, one of the main reasons why the Bible records Jesus having suffered so much physical pain, mental and emotional torture, betrayal and abandonment during his trial and his scourging and his crucifixion ultimately was because it was to show that these are the consequences of our sins against God and he took it upon himself. You and I were meant to experience what Christ experienced because of our sin and rebellion against God. But he took it upon himself. Now the question is, you will be asking, how can Jesus substitute us? How can he take our place? Because this doesn't work in today's legal system, isn't it? A couple of months ago, there was a case whereby a woman was involved in a car accident. She did not have a driving license but was the driver and caused a collision with a motorcyclist. Her father was in the car, and he has a license. And what he did, I believe, there was was no uh, information about it, but I believe out of love, concern, and being protective as a father, he told the daughter that he would take her place, assume the responsibility, and they agreed, and this is what was the story they would report to the police, the authorities. And so that's what they did. And the authorities believe, and they took it that the father was the one who caused the accident because he was the driver. But ironically, the victim sued them and, was, and managed to uh, obtain the recording device in the, car, in the car, and it recorded their audio conversation of the agreement to do this substitution. And so this was reported to authorities, and they were charged. And so in the end, the daughter was jailed 17 weeks for allowing the father to take responsibility and the father five days for doing so. Let me ask you, what is wrong for someone to take the rap of another, especially if that person is willing? A father taking the rap of a daughter, why can't justice be satisfied? 
You see, because for justice to be satisfied, the person who is guilty must be punished. Punishment must be executed. And what compounds the problem if this was allowed in our country, in other places also, that the innocent is being punished too. So how is it that Jesus Christ, who is innocent, can be our substitute and take our place? One, because in order for Jesus to fully pay our debt that we owe to God, Jesus has to be sinless and innocent. Because if Jesus is not innocent and sinless, he will owe a debt to God himself, and he can't pay the debt for us. He can't substitute us. But because Jesus is the Son of God, innocent, perfect, sinless, and divine, his sacrifice is of infinite worth to pay for the infinite debt that we owe to God. Only he is able to pay this infinite debt. That is why no one else, not even our loved one, others, good people, can pay the debt that we owe to God, not even ourselves. But Jesus was innocent, isn't it? And he was without sin. And God laid, how is it that God was able to lay our sin, our guilt, and our punishment upon him? And the reason why this is made possible is because of two things which I truly believe what makes, this is what makes Christianity so unique, is that Jesus is the Son of God, fully divine, and Jesus is also man, fully human. Because Jesus is God, He is perfectly one with the Father. There is no separation. He is one with the Father, which means that He and the Father are one. At the same time, because Jesus is man, as to why he was born to be a man, so that he can be one of us. And so, he is one of us. The only difference is that he is perfect and sinless. So Jesus is both one with God and one with us. And because Jesus loved us, he willingly chose to be united with us. That is why all who believe in Jesus Christ are also one with him. And the oneness is seen in him taking upon all our sins because he is fully man. And yet at the same time, why he was able to take our place and substitute because and pay the infinite price is because he is also fully divine too. No one else is like that. And because the Father and Jesus are the one, the Father who demands justice is also at the same time demand is also providing the payment for it. And it is the Son who is willingly doing it. And so that's why when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus upon us. And when Jesus was upon the cross, He saw all the evil, wickedness, filth, and terrible things that we have done upon His Son. And that's why He died the death that we ought to die, that we might live the life that we do not deserve. I know this is not a perfect illustration, but I hope it would help to, to, to kind of understand what this means about Jesus being one and why he's able to substitute us. Okay? I tell you it's not perfect, okay? so don't complain to me later. The idea of being one united is very similar in a marriage between a husband and wife who are seen as one. So for example, 
a husband took a personal loan, personal loan, and he's, there's no other guarantee except himself, and he's unable to pay the debt, and he doesn't dare to tell his wife. So he owes money to the bank. And because it's a personal loan and nobody else was in the signatory, was, nobody was signed, the money owed to the bank, the bank cannot pursue anybody else but this man. So the bank can only go after him, not even his wife. So it also means that if this man somehow dies, the debt also goes with him. But let's say the wife is rich and doesn't tell the husband that she's rich, chooses to, to help the husband and pays on behalf of the husband, goes to the bank and says, I will pay the debt on behalf of my husband. What do you think the bank will say? No, cannot. cannot. I cannot accept your payment because it must be from your husband. Of course not, right? If not, all the banks will go bust, right? Obviously, the bank will accept the payment. In fact, the bank will take the, the wife's money, clear the, the husband's debt account, and now he is back to good standing with the bank once again, even though the money didn't come from him, but came from his wife. So does it make sense? The reason why Jesus can pay our debt is because he is us, only sinless and perfect. And reason why he could be our substitute and fully pay our debt is because he is fully divine, of infinite worth. And because we know Jesus' death fully paid for all our debt of sin, and God's justice is fully satisfied, do you know what it means? It means that when we place our trust in Jesus, you and I can be confident and assured that we are now right with God. There is no brokenness in us. We are made whole, and our future with God is secure in Christ. But you may push back to me and ask me, so even if this makes sense and the, and the justice of God works, how does it still prove God's great love for us? And this leads me to the last point. Jesus once said, greater love has no one than this, than someone to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is telling us that when someone is willing to lay down his or her life for a friend, that is truly a demonstration of great love. But yet this is not something so extraordinary that you and I cannot understand or are unfamiliar. I'm sure for us who love our loved ones so dearly, we would be willing to lay down our lives to put ourselves in harm's way for our spouse and even for our children. We would rather die than to see them being hurt. You would dare to lay down your life for your loved ones. So how extraordinary is Jesus' life, sacrifice? So in some ways, what Jesus said is, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love is being expressed, isn't it? So what happens if someone said that they love you, but gave you gifts that cost them nothing? Basically, free gift. All the time, it's always free gift. How would you feel? You wouldn't feel really good, right? You wouldn't feel so good and you also won't be so sure whether how much this person loves you because it costs that person nothing. And do you know that some companies today use this idea to do business? Do you know that? Like those companies that sell jewelry. 
So let me ask you, young men and actually also old men also, how much is a guy expected to pay when he wants to buy an engagement ring for his fiancée? How much? George Clooney paid $450,000, but that's a different category. Usually, what is the uh, standard? How many months of salary? How many? Three months, okay, yeah, okay. Now, do you know how the, how the three months came about? Let me explain to you. In the 1930s, De Beers, which is the diamond company that still holds a monopoly over the source, I mean, the supply of diamonds, did a marketing campaign that to buy a diamond ring for your loved one, you needed one month's salary. This is 1930s. So who came up with the amount? Nobody but De Beers. Later on, they saw it succeed, and they changed the marketing campaign and stepped up the amount and promoted with this tagline, which I think is brilliant. Two months salary showed future Mrs. Smith what the future will be like. Do you know what it means? Two months worth of salary showed the future Mrs. Smith what the future will be like, which means that if you can afford to buy her a diamond ring, she means your future secure, you're financially provided, you don't have to worry. Ah. Oh. So good. And men who love their loved ones want to, want to show that confidence will want to do that. But that's not even good. There's even a better one, which to me is awesome. <laughs> they continue with another tagline. Okay, listen. Uh. How can you make two months' salary last forever? How can you make two months' salary last forever? You buy a diamond ring. So compared to something of forever value and something of two months, obviously, it's a dummy, it's a dummy question, right? You buy the ring. Eh? And so a lot of men also went to buy the ring. And then, of course, they upped it up, become three months uh, salary. And then, of course, there's a new tagline, which is what? A diamond is forever. No need to say already, all right? So basically, the more that you're willing to pay or buy a diamond ring or a jewelry for your loved one, it shows your great love because you sacrifice a lot, okay? Don't know whether there'll be a lot of quarrels or fights after this, you know, maybe some of you may find out, how much did you buy for me, eh? okay? okay? I didn't fall in because I, was, I got no money, so no choice, so sorry, my wife. So for decades, young men wanted to prove their love for their lovers, they were willing to pay the price. So why is it that Jesus' sacrifice is a demonstration of God's great love a love that is even greater when you and I are willing to sacrifice for our loved ones. It is because of the word friend. Jesus said, and I repeat, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. When people are willing to die for their loved ones, it does truly show the great love that they have for each other. It is a great love because the sacrifice is great, because you're paying with your life. To give up your life for another is truly sacrificial. But what if the person they are to die for is not a friend, but an enemy? Not just an enemy, but a personal enemy. Not like an enemy between two armies, but a personal enemy who has a vendetta against you. 
When was the last time you heard such a person would die for an enemy who hates us? An enemy who is totally undeserving, who is terrible and wicked and evil, and to top it off, there is no guarantee that your act of sacrificing your life for this enemy, that this person, this enemy, will acknowledge, remember, or even repent and change his or her attitude towards you because of your sacrifice. They may even laugh at you, mock you of your stupidity for doing so. This means that your sacrifice could be for nothing and you're laughed at. This is exactly what God did when he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to suffer and to die, not when we were good, not when we were worthy, not that we were loving to him, but when we treated God as our enemy and we hated him all the way to our guts. When we were filled with our wickedness and evil and our hostility, when we rejected and rebelled against God and we were truly unrepentant, it was then that God sent his son to die for us because he loved us. That is why the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross demonstrates God's great love for us. He loved us when we were sinful and deserving of punishment and death. And so I draw to a close that what I presented to you is to help you to understand that this God that we have is not someone who is strange or far away or is just about someone who is distant. It's someone who loves us. But yet at the same time, he's a God of justice. And in fulfilling that justice satisfactorily, he sent his only son that he loved, that he may save us, that he also loves. And so that's why the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ proves that God's justice is fully satisfied and that we are more loved than we dare to realize and deserve. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us. Help us to once again reappreciate, relearn, re-understand of the costly love and sacrifice when you send your son Jesus to die in our place. And maybe there are some of us here who may not fully fathom or understand this gospel truth. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them and help them to know how they are so loved. And all they need to do is to come to you to say that they believe in Jesus. And Father, I pray that this will also strengthen us and encourage us to have such a great sense of burden and desire to reach out to those who are lost, that we who experience this wonderful and infinite love also want to share with our loved ones, be it in our workplace, at our homes, with our friends. Give us this burden. May we as a church always be burdened to reach others for Christ. And may you begin a work of revival in us. And we pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will go forth and proclaim this wondrous truth and may it change us forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.